will be in Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse uh, 9 this morning. Last week, we heard that this book of Revelation is meant to be a blessing to us, a blessing to us as we read it, as we hear it, Um, and it's meant to be, as we heard last week, a blessing to us now, Uh, not just a blessing in the future or looking to some future event. But John, this, this book came to John through, through the visions, a vision we're going to see today, um, so that we might be encouraged, so that the church might be encouraged today, not just looking forward, but right here where we live this day. Let, let's read it now, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on that island called Patmos, On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergam and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his hand, he holds seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades right therefore, The things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, this day for your word. We thank you that you bring it to us, and you bring it to us this day as a blessing to your people. Would you bless us today through it? Uh, Would you help us to see our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for all that he is, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we get started this morning, um, I, this past week I was reading um, from publication The Voice of the Martyrs and was reading uh, about a pastor named Arjan, a Christian convert from Hinduism. He had, when he had proposed to his wife, he let her know what she was getting into. He said, I'm a minister and I've been attacked many times. In the future, you may be attacked. I may go to jail. Sometimes we'll have food. Sometimes we won't. This will be your life. This is what he told her as he was proposing to her. And she accepted his proposal, saying, live or die, I will live for Christ. The article goes on to say that since then, they've been forced to move many times. Arjung has been beaten numerous times, accused of forced conversions, while his wife has been personally threatened and watched Hindu radicals invade their church. And knowing um, this, that this persecution can be a normal part of the Christian life, um, he, Arjung, uh, now prepares his church members to face it. 
He uses examples from the Bible, such as the stories of Daniel and the apostles and Jesus who were persecuted. He says, many church members have been encouraged. Now they do not fear of persecution. They know it is true that they will have to face it. This is the Christian life. His wife agrees, saying that church members now understand and are prepared for whatever may come. Now that may seem a hard place. We aren't living in the same context that they are. But as John invites us in uh, to his letter uh, this morning, I think he's calling us to a similar place that Arjong was calling his congregation to. John is telling you and I something very similar as we live out our, our daily life and what our expectations should be. So let's see what John has to say. Now what's interesting is John introduces himself He could introduce himself in all sorts of ways. I mean, he's an apostle. He's the beloved of Jesus, right? Um, In 2nd and 3rd John, he introduces himself as the elder. Yet here, how does he introduce himself? He introduces himself as their brother and partner. Their brother and and partner in their faith. It's it's striking. He, He doesn't differentiate himself from them. In fact, he he says, I find myself in the same situation you are finding yourself in. We're in this together, and what is this brotherhood? What is this partnership? He tells us in verse 9, it's in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He says he is their brother, their partner in tribulation the kingdom, and patient endurance. What is he saying? Let's, let's understand the big picture here. John's saying the great king has come. Jesus has come, and whenever he came, he established his kingdom here on earth. And that kingdom, he says, is now here, and he's trying to help the churches to understand what this kingdom looks like. Now, it might not be what you expect. You expect the, the king to come and everything to be great, and, but that's not how John describes it here does he? But he wants them to know what life in this kingdom looks like. Because remember, what is one of John's chief goals here is to help the church to know how to live now, for them to live in their day, for us to live in our day. Back in verse 1, what did he say? He, he, he said he was giving the, the, what he was saying in order what? The, the, that they would see the things that must soon take place. And then in verse 19 that we just read, Uh, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. In both places, what is the focus? What must soon take place, are to take place after this, and as as we heard last week, what is he referring to? He's referring to all those things that take place in these last days, and these last days extend from when? From Jesus' death and resurrection. We are in these days, these days that we're going to hear more about as we move through the the book of Revelation, the days in which he is talking about this morning and and what is characteristic of this time now. He says, what does your time in the kingdom look like? Right now it looks like tribulation. It looks like increased suffering. Now, we hear the word tribulation. Many of us, our our ears perk up, right? we're, We're used to that with the book of Revelation, but we think of like some distant, off event, cataclysmic thing at the end and... John says what? He says tribulation is now. The church is going through it now. It's not just something future. He says, look at me. Look at what's going on with me, verse 9. He says, where am I? I'm currently on the island called Patmos. And why is he there? 
He says, I'm there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, he's there because he has been faithfully preaching the gospel. He's been faithfully teaching others about Jesus, so they exile him to this island of Patmos. And so he's writing as one who is being persecuted, one who is suffering tribulation, and he's, he's, he's writing to churches who are also in the midst of tribulation, also in the midst of various sufferings, and he says, I am your brother, and I am your partner in it, and what does he call them, and I think us too, but to patiently endure. He calls them to patient endurance, patiently enduring the, the, the tribulation before them, all because of what? Do you see it there? All because they are what? In Jesus. All because they are in Jesus. You see, that, that's why they're in the kingdom now is because they are in Jesus. And that's also why the tribulations are coming them now is because they are in Jesus, because they are united to him. And how is it that they're going to patiently endure? But as they are united to their wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Philippians 1.29. What does he say? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We don't like to hear those words, do we? Um, remember, John here, he's writing to the seven churches. As we heard last week, that, 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 that number has great significance. And at the end of the day, these seven churches are all churches, Okay. So we, Fairhill Church, we are one of these seven churches. Not just seven, you understand. Um, but we are one of the churches of which John is calling about. But, but I, I fear, and, and I'm concerned a bit, because I know this is the case for me. I, I, he's talking about tribulation. He's talking about suffering, but I fear that we have an allergy to it. You know what I mean? Like my in-laws have uh, a sofa and a love seat, and it looks all nice because it's got this nice slip cover and all on it. But underneath, I don't know what took place or what happened, but if I sit on it, my eyes start watering. Okay, my allergies start going. So I do everything that I can to avoid it, right? Because I have an allergy to it, right? I feel like sometimes that's how we treat tribulation, how we treat suffering in this life. We, we do whatever we can at all costs to avoid it because we like our nice and comfortable lives, don't we? I'm reminded, I've told you before about my, my good friend, Lean. Three straight years, I sat beside him in seminary, sitting right there by my side, every single class. And yet I'm reminded whenever he became a believer, his family disowned him. As a military officer in Taiwan, he was ridiculed. Now he finds himself laboring in the underground church in China, training pastors, having found himself arrested persecuted. That's what it means for lean. We heard earlier what it means for Pastor Argon, right? What does it mean for you and I as a church to move through this time of tribulation and suffering? Well, I think it means, first of all, we don't just run away from it. And I think we do a very good job of that, don't we? We just run from anything that looks difficult at all. No, it also means I don't think we just run into it like just full bore, but I think we do need to learn to walk into it, maybe lean into it a bit. It is for our good. As, John, as, as Paul says in Romans 5, he says this, not only 
that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How many of us do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does it look like for you and I to live in this kingdom with patient endurance amidst tribulation? You know, it may not look like Lean's, it may not look like Pastor Arjong's. It may look like incredibly difficult relationships with family members, not because you're difficult, but because you're a believer. It may look like some sort of persecutions at work. It may look like being ridiculed when you try to share the gospel with the lost. It may. It may even look like for some in here, for a family, for multiple individuals, maybe God is calling you to leave this comfortable life here and go to the very ends of the earth. But God is calling us. This is our life. We're not meant to just run from it, and it is for our good, even if we don't like the tribulations that we find ourselves in the midst of. And as John begins to write to the churches, he has a wonderful vision. And he has a vision of Jesus, his dear friend. As I was reading this, I couldn't, couldn't be, help but be reminded of a moment in Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian is one of the Narnia books. You may remember Lucy from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, and Prince Caspian, she, she's back. She, she's back in Narnia. And she goes through a bunch of stuff, and then finally she has a a time to be able to reunite with Aslan, who she hadn't seen for quite some time. And she goes running to him, and they embrace, and he says to her, welcome, child. And Lucy responds, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little one. And she says, not because you are, not because you're older, And he says, I am not, but each year you grow, you'll find me bigger. John, no doubt, thought he knew Jesus very well, and he knew who Jesus was, and and even at this point, he knew some of his glory. He'd been there on that wonderful day when some of his glory was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, but something else happens here, doesn't it? Let's look. So John was there. He's on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, the Sabbath day. And he was in the spirit. Right off the bat, as we see this in the spirit, um, we're reminded, and we can't help but be pulled back to the Old Testament prophets, right? And some of the Old Testament prophets who had a vision, and that vision would come in the, context, in the same context of, of, of being in the spirit. And it might be good there to just pause for a moment, because sometimes we, we have a misperception of the Old Testament prophets. We hear Old Testament prophets, and we think they were coming to tell what the what the future was. Did they do that? Yes. But typically their their primary goal was to minister to the people right then and there. To call the people right then and there to repentance, to call them and to teach them how to walk as the children of God. That was so often their primary motivation, not just to tell something future to come. And so John, in the spirit, he hears a loud voice, a voice like a trumpet, a a, a voice reminiscent of the the trumpet sound that sounded whenever God descended upon Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments. 
And the voice tells him, verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Very similar to to what Moses was told in Isaiah and Jeremiah to, to, to write these things down. And often, might I add, to write these things down in the in the context of, of, of judgment. And he's told to send it to the seven churches. We're going to see some letters next week that he sends to these seven churches again. Let's be reminded the seven churches, which are intended to represent all churches from that day to today and into the future until Christ returns. And so John hears this voice and he turns to see the one who is speaking Maybe he recognizes something of the voice, I don't know. Verse 13, and what does he see? In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters in his right hand. He held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was the sun shining in full strength. What does he see? He sees one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that, that favorite way of Jesus, of, of talking about himself, that favorite title that Jesus takes upon himself. And we hear it, we hear Son of Man, and you probably think, oh, this is Jesus talking about his humanity, but I think it's far more than that. Do you remember what happened on Jesus' last day? He's being interviewed by the chief priest, and the chief priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? What does Jesus say? He says, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what does the chief priest do? He tears his garments. The, the chief priest knows what he's talking about. He knows what Jesus is claiming. The chief priest no doubt knows that even the passages he's, he's pointing to in, in, in Daniel 10 and Daniel 7 that point us to this wonderful uh, son of man, the son of man that we see here in Revelation 1. Let me just read a little bit from, from Daniel 10. See if you see anything that you recognize. Note, you should see a lot that you recognize from what we've talked about. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a white belt of fine gold from up has around his waist, and his body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Do you see the similarities? Do you see how he's talking about the same person, the the same imagery, the same picture? This is the son of man promised in Daniel 7, and now he's there in front of Jesus. But the wonder of uh, of what we see here, it actually doesn't end there. Because it doesn't just allude to Daniel 10, or even quote directly from it. it. It also points us to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a little something different going on. You have the ancient of days. The ancient of days is God. Okay, and so he's introduced, and then comes in, the the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days, okay? So you have the Ancient of Days and Son of Man. What I want to do now is I just want to read a little bit of who this Ancient of Days is. 
You see it before you there. In the midst, um, sorry, I just lost my page. Uh, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. And his clothing was what? White as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. Do you see anything you recognize? His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were, were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. You see, just as we saw that description in, in, in Daniel 10 that matches this, now we see that actually this, this, this son of man that we see in Revelation 1, he also looks like who? He also looks like the ancient of days. That's no mistake. That's no mistake at all because Jesus is, he's coming before John, revealing himself to be the one true God. Yes, the one true God in three persons for sure, but one God. So it shouldn't be surprising that he looks like the ancient of days, and this is, of course, why that chief priest tore his garments back in Mark 14, right? Now, as Jesus is standing here before John, we can be tempted, you know, because it's a kind of a wild picture when you look at what Jesus looks like here, right? We don't have time to pull about all the pieces of it, but we can think, oh, is this what Jesus looks like now? And if we do that, I think we're taking things in the wrong direction. John isn't here trying to tell us what Jesus looks like. He's trying to tell us what Jesus is like. He's revealing to us who Jesus is, not so much what he looks like as he's sitting there at the right hand of the Father. You understand? So who do we see him as? Look at verse 14. He has eyes that are like the flame of fire. What does that mean? Eyes that can penetrate to the depths of your heart, to the depths of your soul, seeing you and me for who we really are. Verse 15, he has feet that are burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Does this mean he's pure? Our Savior is pure. And be reminded of what he calls us to, that same purity. In verse 16, out of his mouth comes what? A sharp two-edged sword. This is an instrument of judgment. We'll see next week, Revelation 2, we read this. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see the vision that John has here of the Son of Man as as Jesus in all of his sovereign power. As this great warrior king who comes in judgment. Now, this may not be the Jesus we usually think of, right? We, we, we have our own kind of view of Jesus as this meek and, and mild one. But Jesus is making clear to John who he really is in his fullness. And what is John's response as he sees Jesus? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John's response is the same, actually, that we see of Daniel in similar circumstances when he receives similar visions falling on his face in fear. You see, here we have John, the one who has has been so close to Jesus. He would have probably called Jesus his best friend, right? He now sees Jesus in his full glory. 
reminds me of James. You know, James, Jesus' brother, younger brother. You know, at one point in Jesus' ministry, he, along with the other siblings, thought that Jesus was out of his mind. But by the time he writes his letter, the letter of James, what does he say about his brother? The one whom he grew up with in the same household. What does he call him? James 2.1, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. John, in this moment, sees the Lord of glory. And he doesn't just fall to his knees, but he falls prostrate before him. He, he can't help to. Now, we may see this. And you see this picture of Jesus like, it, it, it's kind of scary, isn't it? We can wonder, do we, do we need this scary image of him? But it's precisely what we need. It's precisely what the, the church needs. Not just a meek and mild savior, surely he is that, but he is also the great judge. The one who will faithfully execute justice. A savior who is faithful, who is going to preserve his church to the very end. Now, Some here this morning may need especially to see Jesus as the great judge. I don't say that so that you will tremble in fear, but I say that in hopes that you'll embrace him. That you'll embrace him knowing that the words that we're about to see about this same one who is this great judge, who's going to judge all mankind, that this same one that we're going to see what else is true of him too. This isn't the whole of John's imagery here. This isn't the whole of what he sees. He doesn't just see Jesus as the judge, does he? Look at verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Just as in the book of Daniel, we talked about, you know, Daniel falls prostrate. John has done the same, but something similar happens. And, and Daniel, one of the heavenly beings, reaches down for him. In this case, Jesus himself reaches down to touch John and reassures John that he has absolutely nothing to fear. He's standing before the judge of all. And the judge says, you have nothing to fear. How can you and I even... Stand before the great judge and stand before him without fear. How did John not have anything to fear? You see what Jesus says? First, he says, remember who I am. Verse 17, who does he say that he is? The first and the last. The first and the last. I am God himself. And if I am God, what I say is true. If I say you do not need to fear, what do you not need to do? fear. That would be enough in and of itself, but that's not all that he tells John, verse 18. He tells him that he's the living one. He's the living one. He says, I died, and behold, I'm alive forever more, and I have the keys of death in Hades. He can say, fear not, because he is the one who died and rose from the dead. He is the one who has the keys, the keys of the grave itself. 
He has the power over death itself because he has conquered it in his resurrection from the dead. And so he's able to say to John, you need not fear. The great king who has come before you is bringing everything to completion. You need not fear. And so as we stand before him today, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. If you're truly in him, if you're not, again, my heart's troubled. Would you have faith in him? Faith that he is truly who he says that he is, that he is the son of man come to save sinners. Would you believe in who he is, that he is the Savior and Lord? Would you confess your sins before him and come to him? Now, our passage doesn't quite end there. Jesus also tries to give some assurance to John. Now, this assurance, as you and I read it just right off, it might be like, this is weird assurance. Let's read it, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this is where often as we move through the book of Revelation, you're going to be like, how does this help me? How does this give me great hope to, to know that angels are stars and the churches are lampstands? Let's just think about it. So these lampstands stand for the seven churches, which we have said, these lampstands stand for all churches, okay? Fairhill Church, we have our lampstand, if you will, okay? And he says, in addition to that, each church has an angel. Now, we hear that, and we, we, we immediately think probably something like, oh, each of our churches, we have like a guardian angel. That's not, I think, the point of what, what is being said here and the point of this vision. But it's to help us understand even as we gather today and to understand the heavenly and spiritual aspect of our existence. Here's the picture that we should see. As we're gathered today, we are not just gathered here at 452 Bow Street in Elkton, Maryland. Our lampstand is in the heavenlies. As we gather together as the church and worship, we're in the heavenlies. That's what we're, he's pointing to. And, and be reminded of, of what we were told at the very beginning of the vision. Do you remember how it started back in verse 13? In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. What do we see here? What is Jesus wearing here? He's wearing the garb of a priest. He's wearing priestly clothes. We see him here as the the great high priest. And what did those Old Testament priests do? And what did they do with lampstands in the temple or in the tabernacle before it? One commentator puts it this way. Part of Christ's priestly role is to tend the lampstands. The Old Testament priest would, would trim the lamps, you know, the wicks on them. He'd remove the wick. He'd remove old oil. 
He'd refill the lamps with fresh oil. He'd relight those that had gone out. Likewise, Christ tends to the church's lampstands by commending, correcting, exhorting, and warning them. We're going to see that next, next week as we look at these letters to the churches. And he does all of this in order to secure the church's fitness for service as light bearers in a dark world. Do you see the picture? Maybe you still don't. Yes, we're more than just sitting here at 452 Bow Street. We're in the heavenlies. And who stands among us? Who stands in the middle of these lampstands? But Jesus himself is right there. He's right here with us. As we come even to this table this morning in a few minutes, he's present. He is with us. He's spiritually present with us. He stands with us. He's protecting, preserving our church. He's tending to us. He's refilling our oil, trimming our wicks when necessary. He's caring for his church. He hasn't just left us to go until he comes back. He is at work in his church refilling us up with the Holy Spirit, if you will, so that we might even go back out into the world this week proclaiming our wonderful Savior and our wonderful Lord. You see, as a church, whether we like it or not, we find ourselves in the midst of tribulation. We find ourselves in the midst of of trouble. And the wonder is that the incredible Lord of glory stands in our midst, stands among us, is present with us. John, John wants us to know, and Jesus himself, who gives this vision, wants us to know that while this may seem far-flung, because we feel like we're sitting here at 452 Bow Street, he's telling us this is reality. This is reality. We are with him. We're swept up into the heavenlies even now and in the wonderful presence of our Savior who stands among us as a priest caring for us, keeping the lights aglow. You see, if we are are in Christ, if we're united to him, he is for us. We need not fear him as we stand before him because he is our hope. If he truly rose from the dead, if he truly conquered sin and death, you and I, we are united to him. You see, having embraced him as Lord and Savior, you have nothing to fear. And he is in our midst. Do you believe it? Do you believe that this could really be true? That our Savior really in our midst this day and that we are with him in the heavenlies even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. Truths that we confess at times, they're 
hard for us. We sometimes lack trust and faith and we live so much in, in our present that we miss that we miss the reality that is now. Oh, we thank you that you are our great king. We thank you that one day you will stand in judgment, but that yet you are also our great savior who died and who bled for us so that we need not fear as we come before you. We thank you that even for us now, even for for our church now, that our great high priest is at work tending to our lampstand, caring for us. Father, would you preserve us? Would you protect us? Would you help us to know our great, our great Lord of glory and proclaim him, proclaim him in this world in which we live? We thank you for the blessing of your word this day. We pray this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.